Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we will be discussing the sinking of SS Andrea Doria, an Italian ocean liner that sank in the 1950s. Before we dive in, I must inform you. The story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before we begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. Today there will be some terms in the Italian and French languages, neither of which am I fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. Many European countries were eager to get in on the ocean liner market for transatlantic travel, and Italy was no different. However, they were always behind the UK, Germany, and France, especially after losing half its merchant fleet in World War II. Well, they were feeling much better about their situation after they created the pride of their fleet, SS Andrea Doria. She was named after the 16th century Genoese Admiral Andrea Doria, with her sister ship being named Cristofaro Colombo after Christopher Columbus. The ship was neither the fastest or largest ship on the ocean at the time, those titles going to RMS Queen Elizabeth and United States respectively. Instead, her designer, famous Italian architect Minaletti, designed her to be the epitome of luxury, with over $1 million being spent on artwork and decor, including a life-size statue of Admiral Doria. She was laid in yard number 918 and the first slipway in the Ansaldo shipyards of Genoa, Italy, being built for the Italian line on February 9, 1950. SS Andrea Doria was 701 feet and 5 inches long, had a beam of 90 feet and 3 inches wide, and displaced 29,083 gross registered tons, spanning 10 decks. She averaged a speed of 23 knots for her service speed and a maximum speed of 26 knots, being capable of carrying 1,241 passengers and 560 crew. The classes were split up in 218 first class, 320 cabin class, and 703 tourist class, and they were strictly segregated to follow traditional transatlantic passenger ocean liner rules of the time. She was the first ship to feature an outdoor swimming pool for each class, being that she sailed the southern Atlantic routes that are typically warmer than the northern route. SS Andrea Doria featured separate dining rooms, lounges, social halls, and designated deck space for each class that included closed promenades and verandas attached to the swimming areas. First class's accommodations were amidships on the upper decks, with cabin class just abaft of first class and tourist class accommodations being divided between the bow and stern sections, being connected by corridors that ran the entire length of the ship. It may be more economical to travel tourist class on the Andrea Doria, but there was certainly much more walking involved. Not only was SS Andrea Doria a luxurious ocean liner, but she was built to be decently safe with only a few safety concerns. She was equipped with a double hull and 11 watertight compartments, with any two of these being able to be full of water and the ship would remain afloat. 
However, because of her pointy, slender design, she rolled frequently in heavy seas, sometimes to 28 degrees, and she could not launch her 16 lifeboats if the ship listed more than 15 degrees port or starboard. Keep this in mind as it will be important later. These lifeboats were lined up eight on each side and were in three different standard designs. Twelve of them were 146-person hand-propelled standard boats. Two of them were 70-person motorboats with inboard radio transmitters, and two were 58-person launches for emergency use. The ship also featured the latest early warning radar. Despite this, the ship's rolling tendencies did put a damper on the good news, and she was even more likely to roll at the end of a journey when her fuel tanks were empty, and so it became standard practice to fill them with seawater to offset the weight distribution. If the ship took on water, her watertight bulkheads would fail if the ship listed more than 20 degrees, and with her already having listed more than that in the past due to a rogue wave off of Nantucket, this was an enormous concern. The ship was launched June 16, 1951, her hull being blessed by Giuseppe Siri, Cardinal Archbishop of Genoa, and christened by Mrs. Giuseppina Saragat, wife of the former minister of the merchant marine Giuseppe Saragat. Andrea Doria and her sister ship would be used for the Genoa to New York route, taking advantage of the, quote, sunny southern route alongside some of the Italian liners that did survive the war, like Saturna, Volcana, and Conti Bianconimo. Initially, her maiden voyage was scheduled to depart Genoa on December 14, 1952, but because of machinery problems during her sea trials, she was delayed until January 14, 1953. Following the Italian line's advertised route, she embarked 152 first class, 157 cabin class, and 485 tourist class for a grand total of 794 passengers before leaving for her journey to New York City. She encountered heavy storms on this journey, listing to 28 degrees, which must have been scary for her passengers. Nevertheless, she arrived in New York City, disembarking her passengers on January 23, 1953, and receiving a lovely welcoming delegation that included the then-mayor of New York City, Vincent R. Impelitary. Other than this, she seemed to have a pretty good track record and was a popular ship, known for her luxury and swimming pools. Unfortunately for the SS Andrea Doria, her 51st transatlantic crossing would be her last. She had just successfully returned to Genoa from New York City on July 14, 1956, and was spruced up and ready to leave again on July 17, 1956. She was booked to about 90% capacity, carrying her crew of 572 along with 190 first class, 267 cabin class, and 677 tourist class for a grand total of 1,706 people aboard, 1,134 of them being passengers. She began boarding her passengers at 8 a.m. on July 17th only boarding 277 of her total passengers in Genoa, and the ship departed at 11 a.m. She arrived in her first port of call at Cannes in the French Rivera mid-afternoon on July 17th. There she took on 48 more passengers. After this, she sailed to Naples 400 nautical miles southeast of Cannes, arriving the morning of July 18th to take on the bulk of the passengers. There, 744 came aboard. If you're keeping track, we are at 1,069 of her 1,134 passengers. 
After departing Naples at 6 p.m. that evening, she headed on to Gibraltar to embark the final 65 passengers, bringing us up to our total of 1,134. After that, it was out to the open sea for SS Andrea Doria. Now, there's a second ship in the story we have to get you up to speed on. MS Stockholm, built in 1948 for the Swedish American Line. When she was built, she was the smallest passenger ship operating on the Northern Atlantic route, but she was the largest passenger liner built in Sweden, so they were very proud of her. She was 525 feet in length and displaced about 12,165 tons, so she was roughly half the size of the Doria. Something worth noting, she sailed in the Arctic Ocean regularly, so her bow was meant to break up ice, so it was very strong. Keep that in mind for later. MS Stockholm was going the opposite direction of SS Andrea Doria, just beginning her trip on Wednesday, July 25, 1956, just before noon as she left New York Harbor, booked nearly to capacity with 534 passengers and 208 crew. Though she was captained by Harry Gunnar Nordensen, 3rd Officer Johann Ernst Karstens Johansson was at the helm on the evening of July 25, 1956, when tragedy would strike. If you didn't know, in the shipping world, there are what is known as shipping lanes, much like a lane a car drives in. The reason why these exist is simply for organization so that ships can take the fastest, most direct routes to where they need to go without endangering themselves and other vessels around them. In these shipping lanes, there is usually one going eastbound and one going westbound. If you're traveling from New York to Liverpool, for example, you would need to adhere to the eastbound lane. Stockholm was on her usual course of south of Nantucket, and to save time, she violated the 1953 North Atlantic Track Agreement that the Swedish American Line was signatory to as she traveled in the westbound lane, 20 miles north of where she should have been, smack dead in the way of SS Andrea Doria, and this shouldn't be a problem if the ships pass each other properly. If you listened to our first episode on SS Labrajone or episode on RMS Empress of Ireland, you might remember us explaining that ships are supposed to pass starboard to starboard, meaning each turns the same direction to avoid one another. Almost the exact same thing that happened with the Empress of Ireland would happen here with the SS Andrea Doria and the MS Stockholm. Let's set the scene. It's 6 a.m. on the bridge of MS Stockholm. Third Officer Johan Ernst Karstens Johansson has the con meaning he's running the show for MS Stockholm at the time, and it's his first time alone at the bridge of the ship. You can only imagine how sweaty his hands must have been, how unsure of himself he must have felt, as he stared into the dark scene in front of him. The sky's clear but dark since it was still early morning. As he stared out, he estimated visibility to be about six nautical miles ahead of him, so not necessarily great. Unbeknownst to him and Captain Piero Calamai of the Andrea Doria, they were rushing toward one another on a collision course, with MS Stockholm traveling somewhere between 23 and 21.8 knots. The Stockholm activated their foghorn warning whistle, which audibly alerts nearby ships of their presence in fog or poor visibility, and they'd close their watertight doors, so good precautions there and customary in these conditions. SS Andrea Doria was traveling in the fog that MS Stockholm reached the bank of, with neither ship seeming to be aware of the other in the dense fog. Dense fog is typical near Nantucket Island because of the cold Labrador current encountering the much warmer Gulf Stream, thus creating fog. 
the two ships began to approach one another, their combined speed roughly 40 knots in poor visibility, but because of their radars, they were now aware of one another. Both misinterpreted the other's course, unfortunately, and at first there was absolutely no radio communication between the ships. This would turn out poorly for SS Andrea Doria. According to the original inquiry after the disaster, in the critical moments before the crash, SS Andrea Doria gradually steered to the left, going for that proper starboard-to-starboard pass. However, Stockholm veered 20 degrees to their right, going for a port-to-port -port pass, against regulation and putting the ships into place for collision. Because of the thick fog that surrounded the Doria, the ships were practically on top of one another by the time they visually saw one another. We can only imagine what went through the mind of 3rd Officer Karstens Johansson as the most certainly panic set in as he realized the gravity of his mistake. Despite a last-minute correction of hard to starboard and reversing the propellers by the Stockholm and Captain Calamai turning the Andrea Doria hard to port to try to outrun the collision, it was too late. At 11.10 p.m., the Stockholm's bow crashed into the Andrea Doria at almost a 90-degree angle, hitting the liner one-third of the length from her bow on her starboard side under the bridge. Now, because of the ice-breaking prow on the bow of Stockholm that we discussed earlier, it penetrated through the Doria at a depth of about 40 feet. Five fuel tanks on the Doria were torn below the waterline, and they filled instantly with thousands of tons of cold Atlantic water. At the same time this was happening, the air trapped in the five empty tanks on the port side caused the ship to float more easily, exacerbating the instant list even further. She was doomed. Because the list exceeded 20 degrees, water would continue spilling over bulkheads into adjacent compartments even though only the standard two were ruptured, and she would founder. The collision caused a tear into the generator room which is always a bad situation, and since there wasn't a watertight door in the hallways between two compartments in this area, the flooding worsened. Instantly, radio distress calls were sent out by both ships to numerous radio and Coast Guard stations along the New England coast. SS Andrea Doria's SOS call read like this. SOS, D-E-I-C-E-H-O, meaning this is Andrea Doria. SOS here at 0320 GMT lat 40.3 north 69.53 west need immediate assistance. Captain Calamai kept a level head and is truly a hero in this story. Despite the ship's severe list that would make half of the ship's lifeboats impossible to launch and that there was no way to save his ship unless the list was corrected, he jumped to action, beginning evacuation preparation. In the engine room, engineers attempted to pump out water out of the starboard fuel tanks as it slowly rose around them, first at their ankles, then their calves, then their knees, and still they worked. Unfortunately, the intakes to pump seawater into the port side tanks that were empty to balance the ship were too high out of the water, and so spelled the Andre Doria's fate. She would sink. As for the Stockholm, roughly 30 feet of her bow was completely smashed in and she was dipping dangerously low into the water. However, as they emptied the fresh water tanks, it raised the bow to within four inches of normal, and with their watertight doors closed, it was found they could survive and would not sink, even with their first compartment flooded. So, they would participate in the rescue. Within 30 minutes of impact, Captain Calamai knew the ship had to be abandoned. Because of the list, all of the boats on the port side were far too dangerous to launch, and so there weren't enough seats for everyone. 
Worried this would cause a major panic and a mob of people stampeding the starboard lifeboats, he postponed calling for abandoning of the ship until help arrived. In the meantime, second officer Guido Badano made an announcement to the passengers to put on their life belts and make their way to the promenade deck where their designated muster stations were. In the distress messages sent out by the Doria, they made it clear they needed help and extra lifeboats. The first ship to respond was a 390-foot-long freighter called Cape Ann of the United Fruit Company, and she was returning to the U.S. from Germany with a shipment of fruit. Upon hearing the Doria's distress call, Captain Joseph Boyd of the Cape Ann immediately turned to help. He only had 44 men on his crew and two 40-person lifeboats, but his kindness, bravery, and willingness to help stands the test of time. After he responded, multiple ships followed suit. Other ships included the U.S. Navy transport USNS Private William H. Thomas and her captain John Shea, who was in charge of the naval rescue operation, preparing his eight usable lifeboats. Another ship was the U.S. Navy destroyer escort USS Edward H. Allen, and the French line's Ile de France, a gorgeous 30-year-old luxury ocean liner that was heading east from New York to Le Havre, France. Her master, Captain Raoul de Bodin, was a well-respected veteran of the seas, and he had faithfully served the French line for 35 years. He was hesitant to help at first, thinking it was impossible the Andrea Doria could be sinking. But contact with the Stockholm Private William H. Thomas and the captain changed his mind quickly, and he went to the aid of the Doria. Meanwhile, on board the Doria, yet another mess was unfolding. The eight remaining usable lifeboats on the starboard side were launched partially full, mainly with 200 panicked crew and very few passengers. The Stockholm, satisfied their sleeping passengers were in no danger, offered their lifeboats to help offload scared passengers from the Andrea Doria. Unlike Titanic, which had only sunk 44 years earlier at this time, even non-passenger ships quickly steamed their way to the Doria, some even making it on time, with the Coast Guard stations on land helping to coordinate the rescue. Ile de France arrived on scene less than three hours after receiving the distress call, with Captain Dobodin being cautious about navigating his enormous ship between the two damaged liners and lifeboats bobbing in the waves. The fog lifted as he arrived, allowing for much better visibility, and he positioned the ship so that the starboard side of the Doria was somewhat sheltered. He ordered all of the exterior lights on the Ile de France to be turned on, turning her into a beacon of hope in the middle of the darkness, and this provided emotional relief to rescue participants, crew, and passengers during this scary experience. Ile de France rescued the lion's share of passengers by shuttling her 10 lifeboats back and forth from the Andrea Doria, as well as receiving lifeboat loads from other ships that had arrived on scene. Just like we saw on the Carpathia, some of the passengers on the Ile de France were kind enough to give up their rooms to the survivors, and that's just one of the many kind acts that survivors reported on the Ile de France. In total, 1,663 passengers and crew were rescued from the Andrea Doria, with 46 dying from the initial impact on the Doria. Five people died on the Stockholm due to the incident, bringing the total casualties up to 51. However, the last people to leave the ship were Captain Calamai and some of the crew designated to stay behind. They evaluated the situation after the passengers were saved, wondering if the ship could be towed to shallow water. However, after their investigation, it was clear there was no saving the Doria. After all of the ship's passengers had been rescued, their final crew began to disembark, 
being forced to abandon their beloved ocean liner. By 6 a.m., even Captain Calamai was in a rescue boat with his crew, and at 9.45 a.m., SS Andrea Doria began her final descent. This final descent was captured on film and in pictures, which is miraculous for 1956. By 10 a.m., her starboard side had dipped into the water and the three swimming pools were refilled with seawater. The ship creaked and groaned as her stern rose slightly into the air and the bow dipped under the water, the port propeller becoming visible as it dripped and gleamed in the morning sun. Some of the port side unused lifeboats snapped free of their davits and bobbed around upside down in a neat row as the ship finally capsized and sank at 10.09 a.m. on July 26, 1956, 10 hours after the collision had occurred. The aerial photography of this sinking actually won the photographer, Harry A. Trask of the Boston Traveler newspaper, a Pulitzer Prize in 1957. The passengers were escorted back to New York City on their separate rescue vessels, with the Stockholm limping to New York City despite the major damage to her bow. Families that had been separated were gleefully and tearfully reunited, and those who had lost loved ones eventually either were able to bury their loved one or had to unfortunately accept their loved one was now one with the sea. The interesting thing with finding which ship was at fault for the accident is that both were technically found faulty. Stockholm didn't follow the standard starboard-to-starboard rules for passing, and Andrea Doria was barely seaworthy with how much she rolled and her fuel tanks on the port side were empty despite the crew knowing they should have been filled with seawater in order to balance the weight. Fog was found to be the biggest contributing factor, with the Stockholm needing an estimated $2 million in repairs and the cost to replace the Andrea Doria was estimated to be $30 million. Because of the poor handling of radar by both ships and the fact that radar basically contributed to the sinking, shipping lines were required to improve training using radar equipment moving forward, and passing ships were now required to make radio contact with one another before passing. Marine craft are still required to turn starboard in a head-on situation in order to avoid a collision. The wreckage is now decaying, laying on port side. The superstructure is collapsed. The hull is now fractured and collapsed. The upper decks have slid off to the seabed below. The bow has pretty much broken off. Passageways are collapsing, and there is a massive debris field around the ship. She rests roughly 160 to 190 feet down near Nantucket, and because of the heavy currents and the fragile state of the ship, she's referred to the, quote, Mount Everest of diving, since it is both thrilling and dangerous. If you're still possibly curious about diving this wreck, let me inform you that diving for artifacts has taken the lives of at least 22 different scuba divers. Fishing nets are draped all over the ship, which are perfect for getting tangled up and trapped in. So please, don't dive the wreck. Crazy enough, the MS Stockholm still exists today. She has gone through quite a few different owners, including the same ones who owned MS Estonia and the Star Laro line that owned the Achille Laro, until now where she is owned by Brock Pierce and her name is the MV Astoria. At 74 years old, she is the oldest passenger liner still sailing deep water routes. You might be sitting here asking, wait, so you can cruise on the ship that sunk the Andrea Doria? Yes, yes you can. As for the Andrea Doria herself, she rests at the bottom of the Southern Atlantic, and her captain never returned to sea, his daughter describing him, quote, as a man who has lost a son, the loss of the Andrea Doria never leaving him. Most of the officers did return to the shipping trade, and survivors had mixed experiences. 
Some suffered PTSD and other mental problems for years to come, while others said their experience helped them value their limited time on Earth much more. This episode hopes to do their story justice, to commemorate the memories of those lost, and to highlight the bravery of those who aided the rescue effort. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and we'll put it on our schedule. Check out our community tab for channel updates and check out our second channel, Speedforce Media. Tune in next Sunday for the story of the Russian submarine Kursk K-141 that sank in the Barents Sea, leaving two dozen men still alive underwater. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.